Hello again. Good to see you. Am I ringing? I'm done ringing. All right, good. Um, listen, I'm thrilled to introduce our guest speaker today. He is a guest, but he is not a stranger. Dr. Justin Walker was on uh, staff here. I didn't even get to finish giving you an intro. Got some fans here, deservedly so, but he was uh, on staff here for several, several years um, and a friend of ours, friend of this church, and now he is the uh, assistant professor of Old Testament and Christian ministry. He is also serving as assistant to the regional manager, I think, at Dunder Mifflin. Is that right? And all of his wildest dreams came true. A few office fans out there. All of his wildest dreams came true this year. He is now teaching Hebrew as well. But would you welcome home Dr. Justin Walker. Good morning, friends. It's wonderful to see you. Pray for my Hebrew students. They have their first uh, celebration of learning, which is an exam on Friday. I call, I stole that from my advisor. He called all exams celebrations of learning. So we have party hats and all of that. They're terrified, but it's gonna be, it's gonna be a good time. It's good to see you. Uh, it's wonderful to be home. Uh, it's a gloomy weekend a bit, uh, but good sports this weekend, right? So the Braves have now covered a 10 and a half game deficit. They're neck and neck with the Metropolitans, which is exciting. And, and then of course, professional football's back today. So the Falcons might win three games this year. That's gonna be exciting to see. Um, I'm a Georgia Tech fan. We might win two, that'll be great. Um, we've already won one. We're halfway there to our goal for the year. Uh, and then of course, Georgia football still reigns supreme in the land after the national championship. Of course, it's good to see all that money that Kirby Smart paid his five-star recruits under the table, has paid off, you know? It's good to live in a nation where you can buy a national championship. I like that. That's the American dream. That's the American dream. I'm just kidding. It's not proven. It's not proven yet. But all that's done in the dark will be brought into the light. It's what the Bible says. That's where we are. That's where we are. It's good to see you. I'm uh, very, very grateful and humbled and honored uh, that Pastor Kirk would invite me and allow me to be here today. Our prayers have been with you, which are with them, with him and Bradley and Lauren, and we care for them. We remember them today, and um, it's been beautiful to see from afar how this church, this faith family has rallied around them and, and loved on them, and that's part of the DNA of this church from the beginning. We've always been a people who run toward pain and not away from it, and um, that's a testament to Pastor Kirk's leadership and leadership of Pastor Brett and the pastoral staff and of you the power of the spirit that's in this room. There are, there's no better place to call home than this faith family. At least I think so, but I'm biased. I was raised here, you know? So, um, but yes, it's, it's wonderful to be here. Pastor Kirk, if you're listening or watching, we love you, we miss you. We look forward to seeing you back in this pulpit in just two weeks, two short weeks. And so, yeah, let's express our, our love to him and to them today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to the book of Exodus. Second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 32 is where we are. And so as I uh, knew that uh, I'd be preaching today, I, I don't trust myself often to find passages that I want to preach on, nor do I trust myself to come up with a topic to preach on. And so I often turn to the lectionary, which uh, provides texts from the Old and New Testament for every week of the Christian year. And one of the texts assigned for today, the alternate Old Testament reading was Exodus 32, that we're gonna read the first 14 verses 
together. Um, and as I read this text, I knew this is what God might have before us. That doesn't mean the sermon is good, by the way. Just <laughs> so the verdict's out. But I do believe this is the passage that God has, has for us today. And even as I tried to escape it, God kept bringing, bringing me back. And so uh, this represents one of the most dramatic encounters between God and a human being in all of the Bible. Um, that Moses and God seem to go toe-to-toe for a moment over the future of Israel. And what's at stake in their conversation and in this exchange is not merely the good or the bad that might happen to Israel, that if God's wrath is enacted against them, they're punished, and if God's uh, blessing is poured out upon them, they're not. But instead, what's at stake here is, in fact, the salvation history of the entire world, that God threatens to give up on Israel here precisely because Israel has broken covenant and God has every right to therefore nullify that covenant with them. And if God allows that covenant to be broken on God's end, then there is no Israel. If there is no Israel, then there is no Christ as the fulfillment of Israel. And if that doesn't happen, we're not here this morning. So a lot's at stake in this dramatic encounter. A lot of dramatic moments in scripture, the most dramatic, of course, being the passion of Jesus Christ and the question of whether God will raise up his son. And of course he does, and with his son, he also gets us with Jesus Christ, which is, of course, the gospel. But this is, again, another important moment. And so as, as, as I reflected upon this text, I thought the text kind of pertained to, or at least has as its center, the concept or the topic of prayer. And that's what I want us to talk about today, the concept of prayer. How many of you believe that prayer works? Amen. Amen. Yeah, God has answered a prayer for you. I believe it works too. I don't know how it works. Um, Perhaps you do, but I don't know how it works. I know that it works and why it works because God is gracious and powerful and God listens. But how it fits within the sovereignty and the providence and the foreknowledge of God is far from my ability to discern it. And if you know somebody that says they have it all figured out, please run away from them because they're probably wrong about a lot of things. But I know that it works. And um, I want us to talk about that mysterious interchange that we enter into as the people of God. In prayer. So uh, in 2009, I had the opportunity to serve uh, for a year as an intern at Must Ministries with their emergency shelter. I was also serving as college pastor here at that time. I was fresh out of college, 22 years old, and I would go to Must Ministries and their emergency shelter every Monday night from 5 to 9 p.m. and do all kinds of stuff. My first job, I was in charge of the breathalyzer, <laughs> which is good, right? This 22-year-old kid, holiness background, hadn't had a drop in my life. I'm now adjudicating these human beings like I know what I'm doing. What's that number? I don't know. That's fine, I guess, right? So uh, <laughs> I was in charge of the breathalyzer. I was also I was helping residents with job applications and computers, all kinds of things. But the, the best thing was to just have conversations with these wonderful people. And uh, as a part of those conversations, at 8 p.m. every Monday night, I was a part of the AA and the NA meetings that uh, a fellow Candler student would lead. And she was Uh, so centered and thoughtful and just represented the compassion of Jesus Christ. And I would hear these wonderful people tell their stories of brokenness and how addiction had, uh, had dramatically altered their lives. And yet at the same time, how God had stepped in and restored and renewed and the hope in the room. And at the end of these stories in this conversation, we'd all stand up and take hands together, whether it was five or 15, And she would ask, do you want to pray? And they would always say yes. And it was a matter of whether we would say the serenity prayer or the Lord's prayer, depending on what they preferred. And um, afterward, we'd say amen. And when we said amen, she'd start shaking our hands back and forth. And there was this chant that we would say together. I'm not going to chant it for you, but the words are something like, keep coming back because it works if you work it, which is a common mantra of the 12-step program. And of course, we would hear that, keep coming back because it works if you work it. 
And, if, and you work it because you're worth it, something like that, yeah? And as I heard that, it wasn't just about the meetings. Those conversations were important, and those conversations are a kind of prayer, I think. But even the prayer, I thought, and I think that's a good mantra for prayer. I don't know how it works, but keep coming back, because it works if you work it. So two brief caveats before we dive into the text together. The first is this. This sermon is not necessarily about how to pray. There are lots of ways to pray. You have the scriptural witness as a guide. You have 150 psalms that you can pray on any given day, the prayers of the prophets and of the biblical figures. You, of course, have the Lord's Prayer. There are no shortage of ways to talk to God. Ellen Davis says of the psalms that they are like a First Amendment right of the faithful before God. It's freedom of speech before God. You can say just about anything that's on your mind. I guarantee you someone said it before, even in the Bible, read the book of Job, right? So this isn't necessarily a sermon on how to pray. It's more the what and the why of prayer. And two, this sermon is not about recommending prayer to you as if you don't pray. This is a praying church, amen? You had had a prayer service yesterday. You had first Wednesday, last Wednesday night. You You pray in your small groups every Sunday morning in your personal lives. This is a church of prayer, and I know that. So this sermon isn't meant to beat you over the head, pray more, pray more, pray more. We already carry that burden anyway. This is instead a commendation, uh, showing why and what we are doing in this mysterious interchange with God. And so the title of today's sermon is just getting a hold of God, getting a hold of God. And it unfolds in three moments. The first is Israel's idolatry and building a golden calf. And it's there that we'll see that often in, in our search to get a hold of God, that we often form for ourselves gods that are not God. And the second moment is God's speech to Moses, and it's there that we see that by virtue of God's grace and as God's people, we already have a hold of God's heart. And then in the third moment, we'll see Moses' prayer back to God, and it's there that we will see that as we get a hold of God, we find the true reality of God getting a hold of us. So Exodus 32 is before us. We're going to start at the beginning just by way of context. God has rescued his people from Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. Then once Pharaoh and his minions follow suit, God allows the waters to come crashing back down on them. Pharaoh is drowned. All of Israel sings their praises. God guides them to Mount Sinai where they hear the Ten Commandments spoken from God's own mouth. They're terrified and send Moses up the mountain in their place. They come, when Moses comes back, they promise to obey all that God has commanded. Moses goes back up the mountain. Bless his heart, he was hiking every other day, it seems. He goes back up the mountain for 40 days to receive the plans of the tabernacle. And while he's gone, Israel gets bored. And there's where we are in verse 1 of Exodus 32. This is what the Word of God says. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, People gathered around Aaron, Moses' brother, and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, that Moses guy, it says in the Hebrew, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The ultimate irony of these two verses is that Moses is on Mount Sinai at that very moment receiving from God the plans for the tabernacle. Now, why does that matter? The tabernacle is God's revealed way to Israel by which God might be close to his people, by which God might move into the neighborhood. 
But here's the thing. They're at Mount Sinai, and God's presence is thundering upon Mount Sinai so much that it's rendered the mountain itself holy. And if you touch God's holy mountain and you're unprepared, you're dead, right? So God's holy presence is overwhelming, and God, therefore, wants to make Sinai portable. So the tabernacle is the way of making that presence portable. It's like God gets in an RV and drives around the desert for a little while while Israel follows suit. So this is God's way of one, being close to Israel while at the same time remaining free so that God is not domesticated, so that God doesn't just become a trinket in Israel's pocket, but the mystery of God is retained on the one hand, and then God is so close that in Israel, you might, if you were to ask an Israelite, where does God live? They'd say, he lives right next door, he's right there. But be careful when you approach, make sure you're ready and prepared to worship God. So God has already willed to be close, and here are the people saying, I can't wait for that, I need God to be closer. And then they violate the Ten Commandments in two ways. God, the very first thing God says to them in the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he says, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. And then second, you shall have no graven image. Well, here they are. Hey, Aaron, make for us gods to go before us. So they're breaking the first commandment. By the way, the last time we heard Israel talk, they said, all that God has commanded, we shall do, right? So they're like a good high schooler that comes back from high school camp, right? I'm never gonna sin again. And then give it three days, right? <laughs> Just give it three days. So, uh, so they violate the first commandment. And then secondly, they say that Moses guy was the one who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, not God. Moses was the one. More on that here in just a second. Verse two, Aaron said to them, he doesn't bat an eye, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Now, where did Israel get all that gold? Late night infomercials, that's where it was. No, where did they get all the gold, right? The gold instead is a gift from the Egyptians when God delivered them from Egypt. So it's a sign of God's unmerited favor that they even have gold on their bodies or on their person anyway. So now they're taking the blessing and turning it into an idol. Verse three, so all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold and cast an image of a calf. Why a calf? Who cares? That seems kind of odd. Big fan of hamburgers, I don't know, right? But calves were also, in the ancient Near East, common symbols of deities because they represented strength and authority and power and fertility. So Israel is placing before themselves an image of everything they want for themselves. So they make this calf, and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. All of these descriptors, the festival, the altar, the burnt offerings, the fellowship offerings, the eating and drinking are all used to describe proper worship of God in the Old Testament. And now it's being applied 
to a calf. We read this story and we think Israel is quite foolish, don't we? This isn't a temptation that you and I are necessarily plagued by. None of us are going to go home and feel tempted to take some kind of image out of our house and put it in the backyard and start bowing down to it, right? Even if it is from Hobby Lobby, because those images do have a special anointing on them, don't they? So, but none of us are gonna bow down. Even if they're of Jesus, we're not gonna bow down to those images because we're not tempted in these ways. And of course, Israel, Sinai is like 200 yards away. What are you doing? You can see God's presence on the top of the mountain. But if you read the text closely, you begin to realize how subtle idolatry really is. But Israel isn't, in their minds, worshiping a calf. If you look at verse five, Aaron says, Everybody get excited. Tomorrow we're having a festival. And who's that festival for? Sunday school answer, God. Yeah, it's for God. So they believe in worshiping this calf, not that they're worshiping a calf. They're not rejecting God in their own minds. They're worshiping God as the calf that stands before them. You see, this is how idolatry so often works. As we seek to get a hold of God, it's not the case that we just kind of stiff-arm God, turn our back on him, and turn toward other things. I'm going to pursue money or safeguard my reputation or power or relationships. These things happen, of course, and perhaps we've made these decisions in our lives. But for the most part, idolatry in our minds is not a rejection of God. But as Martin Luther and those who have followed that tradition and others in the Christian tradition have said, idolatry is instead a pulling God down into our world wherein God is no longer an end in himself, but is instead the means to our own ends. It's making God useful to underwrite the plans that we have for ourselves. We know that God is untamable and sovereign and powerful and wild because it's that same God that rescued us from all the things that we've carried in our lives. That God is wild. But see, the terrifying thing is once my life is nice and settled and I have everything where I want it, it's scary to think that God might walk in the room and demand that that be somehow disturbed. And so I pull God down into my world thinking indeed that I have God in my hands and end up worshiping something that I think is God and in fact is not God. Amanda and I lead a small group on Sunday nights uh, every week. It has anywhere from eight people to 28 people depending on how sinful they've been that week. But um, so a couple weeks ago we were reading Jeremiah 2 wherein God's dealing with the idolatry problem again. And God tells them, you worshiped worthless things and therefore became worthless yourselves. We become what we worship. And God's punishment of idolatry is not that God has to come in the room and slap us across the head. But instead, the punishment of idolatry fundamentally is that God allows us to have the idols that we choose. And in so doing, we are cut off from the source that is God's own life. We were talking about this idea of pulling God into our world, trying to get a hold of him, and in so doing, forming God into our own image. And how do we do that? And they came up with a host of wonderful answers to that question. I'll share with you their wisdom. The first way, there's plenty of ways, but some examples. The first way that we do this is the tribal God, wherein God just becomes the supporter of our own ideologies. God the Republican, God the Democrat, God the American, God the financial advisor, God the underwriter of the dreams for my own life. And in this world, we fail to see how we've created God in our own image and therefore divinize our own ideologies. This God is predictable and controllable. Why? Because, well, he looks exactly like I am. 
And in so doing, we keep God from being free to love our enemies and to disagree with us, the tribal God. The second is the religious God, wherein God just becomes a heavenly reward punishment system. This is God, the mechanical God, wherein God sees a good deed and blesses it, sees a bad deed and punishes it. So if you say a four-letter word in traffic, just get ready. God's gonna come and get you. I don't know when he's gonna get you, but he's gonna come and get you very, very soon. Or if you have blessings in your life, well, that's because you can trace it back to all the good things that you've done. Or tragically, if someone is suffering, well, it must be because there's something bad that they've done. And here, God is not free to show mercy upon whom he will show mercy. He's not free to forgive whom he will forgive. The third is the sentimental God, wherein God is just our emotional support and wants the best for us like a good dad. And in wanting the best for us, that best is nothing more than an average American existence. And of course, yeah, I've got some peccadillos to work through, but God's not in a hurry to fix them because after all, that would hurt my feelings. And the last thing God would want is to hurt my feelings. This is a God who is not free to stand in judgment over me, a God who is not free to bid me come and die, a God who is not free to put me to death with Christ that he might raise me up with him. All of these gods are predictable and controllable using God to get our own way. So then we might put it this way in summary. There are a few things more difficult to abide in a life with God than God's freedom. We'd rather God be predictable than powerful intimate than infinite, understandable than untamable. The wild God who once rescued us seems too wild to lead us. So we take his name and write it on the well-polished images that keep us safe, but they cannot save us. Tragically, we fail to see that our prayers become nothing more than a talking to ourselves. The story ends there, we have no hope. But the story doesn't end there, And the second moment of getting hold of God happens in verse seven. So God knows this is going on. Moses doesn't. Meanwhile, back at the ranch at the top of Mount Sinai, verse seven, the Lord said to Moses, go down at once. Here it is. Your people, Moses, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. This is like a married couple fighting about their kids. Let me tell you what your son did today, right? This is a way of saying that all their faults are attributed to your genetics and not my genetics. Your people whom you brought up. Also, God's being a little sarcastic here because this is what Israel said. Moses brought us up. I don't know about God, but Moses definitely brought us up. God's like, yeah, it was you, Moses. It wasn't me. I was just a footnote in that whole thing. It was you the whole time, Moses, which is proof right here in the scriptures that sarcasm is a spiritual gift. (laughs) Comes from our Lord. Pastor Brett's number one gift on the spiritual assessment. It is. So I say that and then join his ranks immediately, right? So it's there. If you want proof, it's right there. I just set some of you free, right? Whom you brought up, Moses, out of the land of Egypt, they've acted perversely. That's an interesting phrase. It means to ruin or to destroy oneself. It's the same word, ironically, not ironically, Uh, tragically, used in Genesis chapter six to describe Noah's generation. They're totally corrupt. It's what leads God to flood the earth and to start over. So it's not merely that Israel has done something bad. Ah, they've sinned. It's not merely that they're just kind of into mischief or tomfoolery or something like this, but they're ruined. They're unfaithful. 
It's broken now. It's irrevocably broken. Verse eight, how have they done this? They've been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them and have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. They're stubborn. There's no fixing Israel. Here it is, ready? Now, let me alone, Moses. Let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And of you, I will make a great nation. Uh, This is the verb to rest in Hebrew, and it means, so God is saying, let me rest, put me down, let me go so that I might punish them. And then I'm gonna make you, Moses, into Abraham 2.0. You'll be a great nation just like Abraham. Now, how do we take this? Well, there are two ways we don't wanna take this. The first way is to a flat-footed, simplified reading, a two-dimensional reading. And it's in this way that we look at a text like this and it seems as though God is somehow a slave to his own passions and he's just overly angry and he's like some guy in a bar fight that's telling his buddies, let me go so that I can beat this guy up. That's not what's going on here. God and God's sovereignty is in total control of God's self. God's wrath is God's love, is God's justice, is God's righteousness. God has every right to cut Israel off. So it's not flat-footed. On the other hand, we don't wanna domesticate the text and say, well, God's just playing just messing with Moses. He's just hoping Moses will come and kind of pray, and so Moses can be, become a good person, but God was never going to do anything to begin with. No, that, God, that makes God out to be a liar, but somehow in the mystery of this exchange, Moses has a hold on God. That God in this verb is showing us and showing Moses that he is open, that he's willing to accommodate that he's willing to adjust. This is an invitation for Moses to step in and to argue things out with God, to have the long conversation. This is the invitation to go 15 rounds with God. This is what it means to live a life with God. We are the only creatures in God's world, according to Genesis 1, that are created in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, the tradition has said all kinds of things. It means Well, because we stand on two legs and walk around, okay? Or it means because we're rational in ways that other creatures are not rational, like your dogs and your cats, right? Some of your creatures are more stupid than others. But we're rational, or we're self-aware, or we're self-conscious, or we're relational, all these kinds of things. But Robert Jensen, an American theologian, he says there's something more fundamental to that image than that. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? That God speaks all things into existence, and addresses all things. In fact, our life comes from the word of God and is sustained by the word of God. But we are the only creatures in God's world who have the capacity to talk back. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? We are the praying animals, says Robert Jensen, that God has created us to have a conversation with us, that we might talk back to God. And if you read your Bible closely, you know that God likes people who talk back. God likes sassy people. You see it in Moses, 
You see it in Gideon. You see it in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. You see it in Job. You see it in all of the Psalms. You see it in Jesus Christ himself who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And asks God to take the cup out of his hand and yet nevertheless says, not my will, but your will. So if you're anybody worth your salt in scripture, then you talk back to God precisely because God is open to adjusting precisely because he loves us. Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, greatest mind perhaps of the 20th century, theological mind. This is what he says concerning prayer. Prayer is a grace, an offer of God. Let us approach the subject of prayer from the given fact that God answers. God is not deaf, but listens. More than that, he acts. God does not act in the same way whether we pray or not. Prayer exerts an influence upon God's action, even upon his existence. That's what the word answer means. Perhaps we doubt the sincerity of our prayer and the worth of our request. But one thing is beyond doubt. It is the answer that God gives. Our prayers are weak and poor. Nevertheless, what matters is not that our prayers be forceful, but that God listens to them. That is why we pray. If you know the story of Jesus walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they don't know who he is. And once they reach the disciples' home, Jesus acts like he's going in this direction, but waits for the invitation before he comes into their home. God says, I'm walking this way, but I'm willing to be talked out of it to go that way. It doesn't mean that God's future is in jeopardy. It's all moving toward the great destiny of God being all and in all, but God's willing to talk it out with us. We might summarize it in this way. God is free of us. He doesn't need us. And yet, in his freedom, has freely chosen to suffer with us and to suffer us. While we corrupt ourselves with God's, that are not God. The good news is that God keeps speaking. Let me go, God tells Moses, and thereby preaches the gospel. I've held you so tightly, God says, that you in turn have taken a hold of me. God has so gotten us that he has been gotten by us. And as God holds us, Prayer is nothing less than holding God back. God in God's sovereignty, nevertheless, is open to us and says, hold me back. Doesn't in there, is Moses going to accept the invitation? We see that in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot? against your people, whom you, there it is, whom you, O Lord, brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Moses is placing God back at the center of Israel's story and reminding him, remember, you loved them one time. (laughs) There was a time you loved them when you rescued them. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. Change your mind. And do not bring disaster 
on your people. Moses is concerned with God's PR. It doesn't look good to annihilate your people, Lord. You know, can you imagine the press conference afterward? It's not gonna look good, right? Moses knows that God's identity is wrapped up in the rescue of Israel. And so therefore the rescue of the nations is wrapped up in God sticking to Israel. Doesn't end there, verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, not Jacob, but Israel. Don't remember that deceiver. He was a fool. Remember the new name you gave him, Israel, your servants. How you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I've promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord, what? Changed his mind. The Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. What do we make of this? Moses is telling God all this information about his rescue and his reputation and his promise. Has God forgotten? Maybe God wrote it on a sticky note and left it in a drawer somewhere, right? It fell off and he had a note on his phone to remind him the next day, oh yeah, I forgot that Abraham guy, right? No, Moses is speaking promises to God that God already knows. And yet... At the same time, he is impinging upon God's own will. So we don't want to somehow flat-footedly read this as though God has forgotten, but instead, as God, as Moses has taken hold of God, God has now taken hold of Moses, so that in Moses' own speech, God hears his own voice, his own promises, his own word. Moses hasn't always talked this way. If you remember Exodus chapter 3, in the wilderness, when God encounters Moses at that burning bush, it's on the same mountain, by the way. It's still Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. First time God meets Moses, he's a fugitive tending his father-in-law's sheep. Moses sees this bush burning up. He's terrified to look God in the face. And God says, Moses, Moses, calls him over and tells him, you're going to be the one that's going to rescue my people. Their pain has reached my ear. And you're gonna be the one to lead them out, to let them go. And Moses isn't so keen on this idea idea. He rejects God, objects to God five times. The first one, who am I that I should go? God's response, I will be with you, which doesn't sound like much of a response. It doesn't seem to answer Moses's question, but in fact, it does. Moses, you want to know who you are. You are the one with whom I am. That's who you are. Before you're anything else, you're the one with whom I am. Okay, God, fine. What do I tell him your name is? I am that I am, or I will be what I will be, or I will be what I am, or I am what I will be, depending on how you translate it, which is a way to say, I am everything that you need. And yet at the same time, wait and see, Moses, you'll see exactly who I am as I take down the Egyptians. That's not enough. Third, God, I'm gonna need a sign. All right, fine, Moses, what's in your hand? Stick, throw it on the ground. What does it become? A snake, that's right. God says, now pick up that snake by the tail. That would have been it for me. No thanks, God. You can find someone else, right? But instead, he reaches down and picks up the snake. It's proof he's Pentecostal right there, snake handling. <laughs> reaches down, picks up the snake, becomes a staff again, right? But then he says, put your hand inside of your uh, coat. Puts it in, pulls it out. It's leprous and gross. Puts it back in, healed. Is that enough, Moses? Well, God, uh, I can't talk so good, you know? God says, shut up, you idiot, I made mouths. <laughs> I made mouths, you'll be just fine. Also, I'm going to send your brother. 
so that your insecurity and weakness now becomes an occasion for authentic community and dependence. And then Moses is out of excuses, and the fifth one is, please send someone else. That's my favorite one. I don't have any more excuses. I would just prefer not to do this. If there's a line that I can go, right, there's gotta be someone else. Please send. That's when God's anger burns, and he says, you're going. That's the first time Moses prays to God, and God's very patient and kind and willing to abide all of those things. But just a few months later, same mountain, same man, same God. Moses is no longer self-doubting, but self-forgetting. He's no longer reluctant, but instead remembering all of God's promises. That Moses is no longer self-centered, but who's he concerned with? God, you're the center of their story. It's your reputation that's at stake, and it's your promises that I care about. And because he is God-centered, he's also Israel-centered, because Israel is at the heart of who God is. What's happened? Well, Moses has taken hold of God because God has allowed himself to be taken hold of. And as he's taken hold of God, he's found that God's taken hold of him. So now, what characterizes his speech is not selfishness, but instead the very promises and words of God. That's what intercession is. That's what prayer is. John Webster says that in intercession, God hears in our voices echoes of his own voice. God himself is a conversation between Father, Son, and Spirit. And God says, what if, what if you might be brought to the table of who I am and that in your own soul and in your heart and in your mouth might be my very word spoken back to me? This isn't a conversation between a mean God and a nice man. This is instead a conversation in God's own life between God and the man who speaks God's word back to God. God has so got us that we are transformed into his image from glory to glory and find ourselves becoming exactly who we were designed to be. That's what the life to come is. When God is all and in all, we finally know one another and we finally know God precisely because God is all our speech and his promises are all we stake our life upon. And then God changes his mind, it says. But there's still some punishments for Israel to walk through. God is still free. So as we impinge upon God, God is still free to do what God will do. But no one can say that Moses didn't have an impact. In John chapter 20, Jesus is risen from the dead. Um, but nobody has encountered him yet. Mary Magdalene is there at the tomb and she walks in to the empty tomb and sees uh, two angels sitting there and they ask her, why are you crying? She says, well, someone's taken the body of my Lord and she turns, looks left and right and sees Jesus there, but he's disguised as the gardener. And so the gardener approaches her, what she thinks to be the gardener, and he says to her, why are you crying? Who are you looking for like a good counselor? And she says, well, if you know where the body of my Lord is, please show me and, I, and I'll, go, I'll go get it. I'll, I'll go tend to it. And then it's at that moment, Jesus reveals himself by saying her name, Mary. And she says, Rabboni, my, my teacher. And then she clings to him. She gets a hold of him. What does he say to her? Don't cling to me. What is that about? He just had his robe dry cleaned, maybe. <laughs> Don't cling to me. He says, because I have to return to my father, but you instead, you're to go to, your, to my disciples and to tell them that I'm going to return 
to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. This is the only time in the Gospel of John, by the way, where God is called not only Jesus' Father, but also his disciples' Father. The resurrection has brought them into Jesus' relationship to the Father. So why does he tell Mary not to cling to him? He's saying, don't bring me into your world. Instead, allow me to hold you and as I hold you, cling to me as I bring you into my world. That's what we signed up for. That in our prayers, in our tears, as we pray for anything as small as traveling mercies, as small as blessing the meal you're about to eat, or as big as the salvation of every soul that's lived now, in the past, and in the future, every request that's filled with tears and angst and worry, that those prayers are the means by which God is catching us up into himself and hearing us and opening himself up to us that we might play a role in the unfolding of his providential plan. God is good. Some of you have been praying for a long time about a lot of stuff. And you wonder if heaven's listening. You wonder if God's given up. You have a hold on him. You have a hold on him. Don't let go now. Don't let him go until he blesses you. And you'll find that with the blessing, you get a new name too. You're no longer Jacob, but Israel. This is the good news of God's presence among us. Let's pray together. God, we've been trying to get a hold of you for some time. And in so doing, because we're impatient because we're insecure, because we want what's predictable, pull you into our world and place your name on things that are not you. God, in the name of Jesus, shatter every idol that we carry in our minds, in our pockets, in our homes. Shatter them now that we might have you wild and sovereign and wonderful and gracious as you are. Forgive us for limiting you. And God, now, teach us to pray as you pray. Jesus, bring us into your relationship with the Father. God, show us that we have a hold on you precisely because you are good and have opened yourself up to us. And so God, also, as we cling to you, form us into the image of your Son, that every word that we speak might be prayed not only in his name, but might be his very words. Bless these people here today. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What a beautiful message, beautiful thoughts. We've taken such a hold of God that we no longer bring him down to be one of our idols or lesser gods, but he takes us up into him and his, his life and his world. May that redeem our prayers and inspire them, empower them. Would you stand with me? Men, just a reminder that today, I believe, is the last day to register for this Friday's men's event. It is free to attend. We just need to plan for food. As you leave today, men, in our lobbies and on our website as well, you can register uh, for that event that's coming up this Friday. Also, as Dr. Justin mentioned, in two weeks, Pastor Kirk will be back here in the pulpit. We're all looking forward to that. I hope you'll make plans to attend then as well as next Sunday. Yeah, you wanna? Yeah, I think it's appropriate. I'm looking forward to it. And if you would allow me the privilege to bless you as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, to be gracious unto you, and to grant you his peace. In Jesus' name, let's give our response from Psalm 19. 
Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. God bless you. You're dismissed.